Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, this is a Sunday school lesson for uh, Sunday, December the 6th. And uh, it's being recorded on Zoom. Uh, look forward to the day when we can all be together in person at the chapel, hopefully soon. Uh, today we are concluding our short series on the Holy Spirit, and this is the third of three lessons that uh, I've recorded. Trust you've been able to look at the previous lessons and trust that it's been a blessing. To very briefly recap what we've studied so far, uh, I began each session with a series of questions and I tried to go through the answers uh, and uh, as we studied the various aspects of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just to recap sessions one and two, we looked at the importance of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, why the Holy Spirit is vital in a believer's life. We looked at the personhood and the personality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, third person in the Trinity. In the Trinity. And the deity of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. We looked at the representations and types of the Holy Spirit that are presented to us in the Old Testament, uh, such as the symbol of a dove, uh, fire, oil, clothing, wind, just to name a few, and giving us some aspects of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. In the second session, we had looked at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, and the difference from New Testament believers, the Holy Spirit presence in Old Testament saints was uh, temporary and transitory. It came upon for certain specific roles uh, and for purposes that the, that God had in had view for the believers. We looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus on while he was on the earth, beginning with the uh, incarnation. And then we looked at the wonderful role of the Holy Spirit in salvation, and we looked at three things last time. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit, which is a sovereign act of God, where he imparts eternal life to the one who trusts and believes in him by faith. We looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which uh, places the believer in a secure position in the body of Christ. And we looked at the sealing in and by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing eternal security until the day of redemption. And we're going to look at additional uh, one additional item at the time of salvation and then the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today. But before we do that, let's just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for the chance to study your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's role in our lives in salvation, in our day-to-day -day walk. And as we study it, we pray that the Spirit would indeed minister to us and uh, that it would be a blessing for the saints. Just commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just to, uh, again, begin with a series of questions to consider around the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be looking at some of the answers to these. The next uh, blessing at the time of salvation is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer? Who are those who are indwelt? Is it a permanent indwelling? How can we, we be certain of that? Is there any sin which can cause the Holy Spirit to depart from a believer? Does one have to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit to know that he is indwelling? And the security of the believer's salvation and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit are inseparably linked together. So uh, 
the first uh, item we look at is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the permanent and universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit among all believers is, is distinct ministry during this church age that we live in. Who are indwelt? Today, the Holy Spirit lives in the beings of all Christians. That is, all those who have trusted Christ and received the free gift of salvation by faith. So all true believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. Now, this was apparently not very well known by the church, as Paul had to remind the church at Corinth, the early church, that is, had to remind the church at Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So a reminder to the believers there. Perhaps even today, some, I, I would say not at the chapel perhaps, but some Christians have this idea that the Holy Spirit comes and goes from a believer's life. Now the truth of the Holy Spirit's indwelling does not depend on our feelings, does not depend on us knowing that it is true. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, period. And the certainty of this can be perhaps proved and verified in four ways. But what are these? First one is that sinning Christians still possess the Holy Spirit. Sinning Christians still possess the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, when Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? He is writing to a mixed group of believers. Some of them are carnal. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3. One of them was living in gross sin. But Paul's exhortation in, uh, to this group of believers, uh, to this particular one who was living in gross sin in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, was that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So indicating that this person was still considered a brother in Christ by the Apostle Paul, even though he was in gross sin. Without exception, so when Paul writes that, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He was writing to all believers, whether they had sinned or not. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a gift to us. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's a gift. Romans 5 verse 5 says, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Nowhere in scripture does it state that the gift was given to some and not to others. And there is no hint in the New Testament that God will take away the Holy Spirit for bad behavior. The third is the absence of the Holy Spirit is evidence of an unsaved condition. Romans 8 verse 9, Paul states this emphatically. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In Jude verse 19, Jude writes, The ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, are devoid of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, it states that the unsaved person lacks comprehension of any ministries of the Holy Spirit. From these verses, we can infer that if lack of the Holy Spirit is evidence of an unsaved state, then the presence of the Holy Spirit is evidence of being saved. And that's what scripture tells us. And the fourth thing is, might seem like circular reasoning, but it's knowledge of the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit is given by the Holy Spirit himself. First John 3 and verse 24 says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in us. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit 
whom he has given us. So the spirit lets us know that the spirit indwells us. Now, if only some believers are indwelt by the spirit, then that only that privileged group could know that Christ dwells in them. And nowhere in scripture does this seem to be the case that he dwells only in some believers. Now, does the spirit abide permanently within the believer or is there some sin that would cause the spirit to depart from the believer? I, I think even in Christian circles today, there are some who believe this is possible. May I reassure you today on the authority of the word of God that it is impossible for the Holy Spirit to depart from a true believer who has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior and committed their lives to him. Yes, you can grieve the Holy Spirit and you can even quench the Holy Spirit, but you cannot cause the Holy Spirit to depart. In John 14, 16, the Lord himself said that the Holy Spirit would abide with us forever. You know, think of this. If some sin could cause the removal of the Holy Spirit, then that sin would also cause the person to lose their salvation because as we have just mentioned, absence of the Holy Spirit is evidence of an unsafe condition from Romans 8, 9. The security of the believer's salvation and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit are inseparably linked together. Let me say that again. The security of the believer's salvation and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit are inseparably linked together. Praise God for that. Hallelujah. You know, we sometimes sing that chorus, uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God. That is based on David's prayer in Psalm 51. We know the setting of Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. That's when David wrote that psalm, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, that was true, entirely true for David, that psalm. But the part of the uh, song that says, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, really is an impossibility for the believer today because God does not take the Holy Spirit away from the believer, regardless of their sin. Now, the rest of the chorus is, okay, restore to me the joy of salvation. Yes, we do sometimes need that. We uh, lose the first love, the first joy that we had at salvation. And uh, that part of the chorus is right. But I think for the believer, uh, uh, take not thy Holy Spirit from me is not really a right statement, even though that's a good chorus. You know, some people might say, why don't I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit? I don't, I don't feel the Holy Spirit in my life. You know, even though the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is non-experiential, and that is, it does not depend on our experiences, it is important that all believers know that this indwelling is a fact, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a fact in the life of the believer, regardless of how they feel. Now, there are two lines of evidence. The first one is the Word of God. And it tells us in multiple places, we also already quoted one, was Corinthians 6, 19. And that was, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So the word of God and experiences of the Holy Spirit. And of these, the word of God is definitely more important. You know, there may have been times in your life, and I know there have been times in mine, where you really know the Holy Spirit ministering to you or ministering through you. There have been times when sharing the word, uh, when you clearly sense the presence of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding and directing your thoughts. And uh, it's just such a marvelous experience. At other times, it may not be as obvious or feel as obvious, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is taken away from you. 
you know, remember the normal process of Christian growth. There may be periods of slow yet steady and, uh, in a sense, unspectacular growth where there may not be any unusual manifestation of the Spirit's power, and that should never be diagnosed as absence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells the believer's life. What a blessing to know that. Uh, let's move on to the next item that I'd like to consider. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And again, questions to consider regarding this. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit and why is it important? What does to be filled by the, with the Spirit mean in Ephesians 5.18? How does this filling manifest itself? Are there conditions for being filled? If so, what are they? Are all believers filled with the Holy Spirit? In contrast to the indwelling of the Spirit, we just talked about that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then what are the results and consequences of the filling of the Spirit? So what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? You know, from the viewpoint of Christian living, this is probably the most important aspect of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, since that is what brings together all the teaching on the Holy Spirit into all aspects of Christian life and service. I think in the first session when we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, I, I said that nowhere in Scripture will you find that God has called us to an adequate Christian life, an adequate Christian life. Oh, you go to church, you read your Bible periodically, you pray periodically, you give money to uh, the Lord's work periodically and just kind of toddle along. No, we are called to life abundant. The Lord Jesus in John 10 verse 10 said, uh, that you might come, I've come that you might have life and life abundant. In uh, Romans 15, 13, which was one of our memory verses recently, that we abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I also mentioned in that first session that the spiritual or the spirit-filled Christian is what the Lord wants all of us to be. First Corinthians 2, verse 15 says this, but the spiritual man has insight into everything. And this is from the uh, Living Bible Translation. The spiritual man has insight into everything, and that bothers and baffles the man of the world who cannot understand him at all. Now, to have insight into things, one needs to have a standard by which all things can be judged or appraised, and that standard is the Word of God. That standard is the Word of God. You know, therefore, the spiritual Christian must know the Word of God. That includes reading, meditating, and studying the Word of God. It's been a real blessing to me now for the past uh, 16 years or so that I have been reading through the one-year Bible. Uh, and each time when you, yeah, there are some sections that you'll read through again, and, but there are others that you'll read through and you've seen, read it before, and yet something new is brought to your attention by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not to say in any boastful sense that uh, I've been reading through the Bible for 16 years because this over. 40 years of my life when I did not read through adequately the scripture. So young people just take to heart that reading and studying the word of God is important. The Holy Spirit plays a vital role in teaching us the word of God. John 16, 13 tells us that he will teach you. It also helps in the role of being victorious over the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. So what does this mean, the filling of the Holy Spirit? And what is the proper definition of it? Perhaps uh, Ephesians 5.18 gives us the best understanding of what it means. And Paul in Ephesians 5.18 writes this, 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let me repeat that. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write it this way, kind of this two sharply contrasting things that he talks about? There is a sharp contrast between the two conditions that's being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, but there is also comparison. And that's the clue to understanding this verse. And the comparison is in the matter of control. You see, the drunken person is controlled by the effects of the alcohol on his or her mind and therefore acts in ways that would, they, they would not normally do and would be unnatural for them. So also the spiritual Christian is controlled by the spirit and acts in ways that are unnatural to his or her old self. Thus being filled by the spirit simply means to be controlled by the spirit. Let me say that again, being filled by the spirit simply means to be controlled by the spirit. Now, how does that manifest itself? Well, there are two uh, aspects of this. So the first one is uh, we'll see in scripture, and maybe you know people who've had this take place, but the second is really more applicable to us. So the first aspect is the sovereign act of God where the spirit takes control of the person, usually for some specific activity. This act of being filled in contrast to the state of being filled it's a different Greek word that's used for this. Uh, and it, it's, uh, you see examples of that. Uh, it's recorded of John the Baptist in uh, Luke 1.15. It's recorded of Elizabeth in Luke 1.41. It's recorded of Zacharias in Luke 1.67. It's recorded of the group on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.4. It's recorded of Peter, the apostle Peter in Acts 4.8. And it's recorded of Apostle Paul in Acts 9.17 and other examples. So it's a sovereign act of God. And in these cases, the Holy Spirit simply overpowered these people, sovereignly filling and controlling them for some special event or activity. God did not impose any conditions for this filling. Now, most of us have not experienced this aspect in our personal lives, perhaps. Although I have heard accounts growing up in uh, India of... Uh, saints of God who have had this, uh, seem to have had this experience happen to them. Now, the second aspect of spirit filling can be described as the pervasive influence and control of the spirit in a believer's life. And we are probably more familiar with this. The Greek for this is uh, pleuronumatos. It indicates an abiding state of fullness of the spirit rather than a specific event. And that produces a character of life that would be equated as a spiritual Christian. Let me say that an abiding state of the fullness of the spirit rather than a specific event in the believer's life. And that produces a character of life that would be equated as a spiritual Christian. Now, this is something that every believer can experience, but not all believers experience this. Let me say that again. This is something that all believers can experience but not all believers experience this. And why is that? And we look at that in a minute. But just uh, one thing to state, Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes that as, it's not a suggestion or a discretionary choice. Paul really writes that as a command, be filled with the Spirit. And it's in the present tense, and it's a continuous requirement, be filled with the Spirit, be constantly filled with the Spirit, or else 
in other words, be constantly controlled by the spirit. So are there conditions for being spirit-filled or spirit-controlled? Now, we said earlier that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is universal to all true believers in Christ. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily experienced by all believers. So again, are there conditions for being spirit-filled and what are they? The conditions I would suggest are yieldedness to the Spirit and obedience to the Spirit. Obedience is the main condition, and Scripture tells us what that means specifically in terms of a believer's life. How does this obedience come about in a believer's life? May I suggest three things. Firstly, living a dedicated life. A dedicated life. For this, uh, perhaps Romans uh, 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, give us the best example of that. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So there's firstly a presentation of one's life as a living sacrifice. You know, there are only two examples of living sacrifices in scripture uh, that are recorded for us. One is Isaac, and the other one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has written that uh, the problem with living sacrifices is they, they want to crawl off from the altar. In both Isaac's and the Lord Jesus' case, they did not do that. Isaac stayed on that altar, but the Lord provided the substitute. In the case of the Lord Jesus, he was the substitute. So firstly, there's a presentation of my life, of our lives, and that's really a daily process. Who will run my life? Is it Christ and through the Holy Spirit in our lives, or is it ourselves? Secondly, there's a separation. Be not conformed to this world. Literally, it says, stop being conformed to this world. If someone examined your life uh, looking for evidence, could they convict you of being a Christian? If someone examined your life looking for evidence, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Or is your life so similar to the world around you? And thirdly, there's a transformation. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And again, this is it continual process the centers in the mind by renewing of your mind you know in philippians 4 paul uh, writes whatsoever things are pure whatsoever things are noble whatsoever things are lovely become these things you know what are we filling our minds with during the week before we come in the lord's presence on sunday let there be a continual transformation secondly it's an undefeated life and not a sinless life and we we all sin, and all of us will fall. None of us meets God's standard of holiness. Yet we know the penalty of our sin has been fully paid for by the Lord Jesus at his death and resurrection. You know, at each stage of our spiritual growth, God provides a certain measure of light, of knowledge of him to us. And each person must respond to the particular amount of light that God has revealed to them and walk in that. As we grow and mature in him, he shows us more light, reveals us more of himself. And we also deal with our sin by immediately confessing it. First uh, John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess literally means to agree. We agree with God that our sins are grievous and are just vile to him. And we turn from it and he cleanses us and clothes us in his righteousness. 
you know, in uh, Romans 7.25, and the Apostle Paul struggled with that too. He said, the things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. The things I do want to do, I do not do. Who can deliver me from this wretched body of sin? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the key to an undefeated life is relying on him and uh, confessing our sins and continuing to walk in the measure of life that he has given us of himself. In Ephesians 4, 29 to 31, we see some sins that particularly grieve the Holy Spirit, corrupt speech, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, or coarse jesting. Are we guilty of some of those sins? I know I am. Have there been times when our conversation was not full of grace? Even the Apostle Paul that I have mentioned struggled with this, so let's live in the light of what God has given to us in his word. And the third thing really for the key to this obedience comes from a dependent life. We are asked to walk by the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 says this, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You know, all walking requires steps of faith. You know, when a child begins to walk, uh, how Intently, the parents watch and so are so happy when the baby takes the first steps. But walking at any age of life takes a, a step of faith. If you think about it, you know, when you walk, you lift one foot off the ground. And before you can place that foot on the other ground, you're having faith that your other foot uh, is strong enough to support your entire weight for that split second before you put the other foot down. And that process is repeated again and again. So each step that you lift your foot up takes a step of faith. And so also walking with the Spirit, it's a continual dependence of, uh, on the Holy Spirit. Not sometimes in our strength and sometimes with the Holy Spirit, but always depending on the Spirit. If you don't, I guarantee you, you will, and you fail and you will fall. So a dedicated life, an undefeated life, and a dependent life being filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, what are the results of the filling of the Holy Spirit or consequences of the filling of the Holy Spirit? In that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, we see immediately following that verse, be filled with the Spirit, we see a number of uh, results. Firstly, there's an outward expression of praise and worship. Outward expression of praise and worship, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Is your heart overflowing with worship and praise to the Lord? When did you last express that faith, that praise publicly? Did we examine ourselves? When was the last time we publicly expressed our praise and worship for the Lord Jesus Christ? Whatever setting that might have been. Secondly, is an inward expression of praise, and that was chapter 5, verse 19, by singing and making melody in your heart. Do you have an inward attitude of praise, or is it always complaining and grumbling about your lot in life? Thirdly, Third result, verse 20, is a thankful heart, giving thanks always for all things. We've just come through a Thanksgiving holiday where a lot of us were unable to be with family due to the COVID virus. Are we still thankful for all that the Lord is to us and has done for us? And the fourthly, verse 21, is submissiveness, uh, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Are we truly willing to submit to one another or does it always have to be our way? 
You know, in that section in Ephesians 5, submission, love and respect, follow in the succeeding verses in the husband and wife relationship. Being controlled by the Spirit also results in the gradual development of Christ-like character, and that's manifested in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've already studied these fruit quite in some detail at Sunday School previously, so I'm not going to expand on that today. But in summary on this, uh, a spirit-filled or a spirit-controlled life is not a sinless life. It's not sinless perfection. That's not possible on this side of glory. But it is a life and lived in the right path, the one that grows and matures day by day. It's not sinless, but do we sin less and less as we move along with our Lord Jesus Christ? Don't be discouraged if you fall into sin occasionally. We all do. But 1 John 1, 9 should get us on the right path again. So the first two blessings we looked at, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and then the filling of the Holy Spirit. Just a few more things to talk about. Spiritual gifts. Again, this is something that we've looked at in some detail at Sunday School and Bible Hour, so I'm just going to make some general points about this. I won't go into all of the gifts and the individual characteristics of those. You know, does every believer have them? The answer is yes. You know, all believers have at least one spiritual gift. First Peter 4 verse 10 tells us that. All believers have at least one spiritual gift. And no one believer has all the spiritual gifts. Both those things are true. Therefore, we need the ministry of each other that we can give to each other in the church. I might also state that it's not necessarily that all spiritual gifts are present in one local fellowship. Again, that's important to know. It's not necessary that all spiritual gifts are present in a local fellowship. The Holy Spirit knows what each local church needs and gives it accordingly. Now, the Greek word for spiritual gift is charisma. Charisma really is grace. So all spiritual gifts are given out from God's grace, given by the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that in a minute, the difference from natural talents. What passage of scripture tell us about spiritual gifts? And most of you know this. Uh, there's two fours and two twelves. It's a good way to remember it. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are the passages that talk about spiritual gifts in the Bible. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability for service and at least one believer, one gift given to each believer at salvation. What are spiritual gifts not? Well, a spiritual gift is not a place of service. A spiritual gift is not a place of service. It's the Holy Spirit's Holy Spirit given ability and not the place where the ability is exercised. It is not an office. There is a gift of pastoring and then there is an office of pastor in many churches today. Uh, when they both overlap, that works extremely well, but it doesn't always do that. It's not a particular age group ministry. For example, there is no spiritual gift listed in the Bible for youth ministry or old age ministry. And it's not a specialty or a technique. There's no gift for writing Christian education or Christian music. And it's not a talent or a learned skill. Spiritual gifts are given under the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit and the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11 says this, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, 
distributing to each one individually as he wills. One and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 31 urges us to desire the best gifts. So how do we identify our own spiritual gift or gifts? Well, firstly, take inventory. Remind yourself of the natural abilities that you have and learned skills you have acquired. Look at the list of spiritual gifts in scripture and consider what areas of service you may be active in. Secondly, prepare yourself. Uh, sharpen your natural talents. Continue to take opportunities to learn skills and work on some of the more obvious spiritual abilities. For example, if being a good steward in our own lives may bring to the surface the gift of giving. To be a good exhorter, the gift of exhortation, one needs to know the word of God well. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, pray and be active. Pray about your gift, but be active in the Lord's work. Spiritual gifts are best discovered and developed when one is already active in the service of the Lord. Let me say that again. Don't pray and keep waiting and waiting and waiting for the Lord to show you your spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are best discovered and developed when one is already active in the service of the Lord. You remember Philip in the book of Acts as Philip the evangelist in uh, ministering to the Ethiopian treasurer in Acts chapter 8. But before that, Philip began his ministry to the widows in Acts chapter 6. So did Stephen began his ministry to the widows in Acts chapter 6. So just uh, we asked about natural talents, learned skills, and spiritual gifts. What are the difference? Natural talents given by God to us through parents. Learned skills are learned by us. Spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Natural talents given at birth. Learned skills learned in life. Spiritual gifts given at new birth. Natural talents to benefit people in general. Learned skills to benefit people in general and oneself. Spiritual gifts are given to benefit the church and to edify the saints. And then just uh, in to end this section on spiritual gifts, there are spiritual gifts, but there are also commands given to all believers, whether you have the spiritual gift or not. For example, the gift of serving mentioned in Romans 12, 7, the command of serving, serve one another in Galatians 5, 13, the gift of exhortation, Romans 12, 8, the command given to all to exhort one another, Hebrews 10, 25, as iron sharpens iron. The gift of giving, Romans 12, 8, all commanded to give generously in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of teaching, Romans 12, 7, command to teach, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, verses 19 through 20. The gift of showing mercy, Romans 12, 8, the command to be kind to one another, Ephesians 4.32. The gift of faith, 1 Corinthians 12.9. The command for all to walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5.7. Gift of evangelism, Ephesians 4.11. We are all called to be witnesses in Acts 1.8 and also in uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So, spiritual gifts. Let's look at a few more ministries of the Holy Spirit. He teaches us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. John 16, verse 12 through 15, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And the Holy Spirit will disclose to you what, what he has taken from the Lord Jesus and from Jesus to us. While Bible studies, uh, guides, commentaries, Christian authors are all good things to read and study, ask the Holy Spirit to show you truth from the scripture as you read and meditate. 
and he will, and he will. He guides us, Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The child of God need never walk in the dark. He or she is always free to ask the Holy Spirit for guidance in all areas of life. He assures us, Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you sometimes have doubts that you are a true child of God? Perhaps after falling into some sin or some unwise, nasty speech, the Holy Spirit can assure you through the word of God that you are indeed God's child. And he prays for us, Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, there are times, uh, difficult times in our lives when we uh, sometimes are just really don't know how to pray about a certain situation or how, what to pray for. And the Holy Spirit takes those thoughts, perhaps disjointed, perhaps broken, that we have and presents it to the throne of grace. How wonderful to know that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And we have an advocate before the Father, our faithful high priest, who also always intercedes for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our prayers may not always be eloquent. Um, Max Lucado, in one of his books, writes about two kinds of prayers. He calls them concords and crop dusters. Concord, remember the old plane that's no longer in service, but the one that had that sleek, almost rocket ship-like appearance to it and flew at the supersonic and it was smooth and sleek. And, and then you have crop dusters, that uh, the propeller that keeps spilling smoke all the way and as they dust the crops. And he compares some prayers to that. There's some who, when they pray, it seems like a concord, so smooth. And, but most of us are like crop dusters. We, And yet the Holy Spirit is able to take whatever we bring to the Lord and bring it to the throne of grace. What wonderful blessings we have in and through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, fruit of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit, teaching, guidance, assurance, and prayer. How wonderful are the blessings of our salvation, blessings from the Holy Spirit. One last thing I'd like to talk about in this series, and I will mention it. Jesus mentions the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And some are troubled by this, uh, wondering if they have committed it. Or uh, is it truly unforgivable? What did Jesus mean by that? And is this sin even possible today? Well, let's look at the context in which, quickly, in which the Lord Jesus made this statement. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, we see this account. Jesus had healed a man who was blind and dumb, possibly even deaf too, and therefore really impossible to communicate with, except through writing. Uh, not even writing. They didn't have Braille in those days. I would say. So it, it was just impossible to communicate with the man. Uh, and Jesus healed him all at once through the power of the Holy Spirit. The people began to suggest that Jesus was the son of David, the long-promised Messiah, and this angered the Pharisees so much that they accused Jesus of curing the man by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus responded to them, saying, A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. You see, it was illogical that Satan would fight against himself. So their converse, it was logically the power of God 
that Jesus was manifesting. And Jesus said that this sin against himself, that against the Lord Jesus himself, was forgivable because he recognized that many of them may have misunderstood his ministry, but not one against the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of his power. See, there was no excuse for misunderstanding the power of the Holy Spirit since Pharisees knew and had seen it from and knew about the power manifested in Old Testament times. So speaking against the Holy Spirit was not just a sin of the tongue, but it was a sin of the heart expressed in words. And to commit this particular sin that Jesus mentions in this passage in Matthew required a special situation. The personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth performing miracles by the power of God and the Holy Spirit and their rejection of it. Therefore, to commit this particular sin that the Lord talked about would be impossible today in that the Lord Jesus is not physically present on the earth. However, we can show the same wickedness of heart as the Pharisees did in committing the unpardonable sin by rejecting God's free gift of salvation. And that happens so often today, doesn't it? You see, no one can presume on God's grace. Let me say that again. No one can presume on God's grace. If you harden your heart repeatedly against God's grace, forgiveness of sin may never happen. Forgiveness of sin may never happen. My mom's younger brother was a brilliant man. He rose up high in government circles and foreign service in India. He knew the Bible in and out as a child growing up with my mom's mom was a believer and he knew all about the Bible. He could quote passages from it, but did not believe it. And I don't know if he was planning to believe at a later date or putting it off, putting it off. Towards the end of his life, he had uh, severe Alzheimer's. And uh, I, unless the Lord worked miracles in his mind, he went to a lost eternity completely brilliant person, knowing all of scripture, and yet not repenting and committing his life to the Lord. I trust that's not the case with you. Have you trusted the Lord today? You see, as long as a man or woman has breath today, they can be forgiven of any sin. Romans 10 verse 13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've not taken that step, would you do that even today? Commit your life to the Lord and all these blessings that we've been talking about, guarantee uh, eternal security in the Lord Jesus, all of that it would be true for you and you could rejoice in him today. And for those of us who have trusted Jesus as our Savior, I trust the meditation on the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we've looked at these past three Sundays and all the blessings associated with it and with our salvation have been a blessing to you as they have been to me. May the Lord bless his word. Let's just close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this chance again to look into your holy word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to lead lives that are controlled by the Spirit, spiritual lives, and that you work in us, that uh, the character of the Lord Jesus is being developed in us day by day, and that one day when we see you, we will be like you. Thank you for every blessing we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Just uh, continue to be with us as we await your return in the days to come. Thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.